0: It's, it's an honor to be sharing this morning. We we're in the in the middle of this series called "I Lack Nothing." You guys been enjoying it thus far, yes? So we've covered we've covered quite a bit of ground already. Um, John horswell has been sharing the last couple weeks around ambition and calling, and what does it mean to approach the call on our lives and the things that we dream of doing and the vocations that we have and the present moments that we're living in with a perspective. That is one without lack, and I think it's been amazing, really, really helpful. And we've got a little way to go. We're going to stay on this series all the way till Easter Sunday, um, at least, I think. Actually, it continues, may continue after that, but we're going to cover more ground. We're going to explore relationships, both, you know, for those married, in relationship, those who are single. What does it mean to lack nothing in our relational, in the relational aspect? What about in our finances when it comes to uh, what we have and how we can steward it? And, and today and next week, I want to dig into Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes and how, for me, the Beatitudes have been such a manifesto of what the simple life is all about and what the invitation into a life that lacks nothing really means. So are you happy to stay in, stay in the Beatitudes for a couple of weeks? Yeah? All right. I, I kind of wish that I had learned about the Beatitudes earlier in my in my faith journey and no one ever really spoke to me about them I never heard them preached on much I heard them skimmed over it was almost like this nice few sayings that Jesus you know ushered one time but actually the Beatitudes are the cornerstone of the kingdom the Beatitudes are the manifesto of Jesus's kingdom it's the invitation to a whole new way of living and last year, I spent about six months just on the Beatitudes, verse by verse, exploring what they mean and how it might impact my life and the life of my family. And it led Kara and I to the point of making the decision, we shared this end of last year, to, to, to move. And most of you noticed, know but this year we're going to be moving to Canada, moving back to where Kara is from in Canada, and um, it's a huge decision for us, it's a massive uprooting, it's a massive upheaval, we're in transition now, and honestly, that decision wouldn't have been made if it wasn't for the Beatitudes, it was about, in the summer last year, Karen and I went away for a week, and um, we spent, I'm not trying to make us sound like holier than thou, because we really are not, But we were reading the Beatitudes and each day we'd just reflect on them and it would just be over like having food or going for a walk. We'd just kind of talk about what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit? What did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are the meek? And the more that we unraveled these teachings and we unraveled these words, they they start to get into the very fibers of our life, everything that we did and everything that we thought was getting affected by Jesus' teaching, to the point we made the decision that we're open, Jesus, to you leading us in a way that we have never been before. Your teachings here are leading us somewhere new, and we didn't think it necessarily to be geography, like we didn't think it was location, we thought it was more an inward journey, and it ended up being an external journey, and we're going to share a bit about that over the next couple of weeks, and how it really all comes together in this statement of I lack nothing. So why don't we dive in, I'm going to read from Matthew 5, uh, verse 2. Do you guys have that? I think you might have it up on the screen. You can throw that up. This is right at the beginning of the Beatitudes, right at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus' famous preach, Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7. Jesus is teaching this radical new way of living, and it's very like upsetting to the current time of understanding the religious law. It's a very um, overthrowing of the tables of spirituality at the time, and it's still doing that today. I love telling people who don't, you know, don't believe Jesus is God, who don't follow, you know, Jesus' way as a a, a lifestyle, just to begin with the Beatitudes, just to begin with the Sermon of the Mount. Just read this guy, Jesus. Just listen to this guy riffing. He's got something to say. And so it opens up with this. It says, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, this is the first line of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm going I'm to pause there and we're going to pick up for the rest of them next week. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These become little catchphrases. Things that we get real comfortable with. Statements that we can reel off by heart. But actually, at the time that they were spoken, they overthrew so much internally for the people that were listening. And it's still happening today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As Jesus began teaching, it says he sat down and his disciples came to listen. He literally sat down, he started speaking, and his disciples, so the people that were following him, came around to listen. But by the end of Matthew 7, it says the crowds were amazed and astonished. So through the few chapters of Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount, all of these people start gathering around. And we know through Jesus' ministry, when he was teaching out on the streets, he was teaching the people, he was teaching salt of the earth kind of people, let's put it that way. He was teaching the people that were out and about. He wasn't teaching people day a day of great affluence and influence. He was teaching people just like his disciples, tradesmen. He was teaching people that existed kind of on the lower levels of society. There are times where he speaks into the more influential, affluent areas of society, but the majority of Jesus' teaching was on the streets, in the dust, with the people. And when he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It was both a challenge to the people that were listening, but also a validation of the people that were listening. When Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he's getting at the idea of what it is that we own, what it is that we possess. And now we're hearing this message in 2021 in England, not only England, in Bath, in an environment and in a culture where we possess a lot. We're listening. To these sermons and these scriptures in a time where there is need yes but for the for the majority of people there's provision and there's enough we live in a system that does pretty well to take care of people in need there's still a lot, long way to go but we're not speaking we're not listening as the initial audience was when Jesus was speaking we're not listening as an audience that's under oppression we're not listening necessarily as an audience that feels like it's got the boot of an empire on its neck, which these people had. So when the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, it's getting very specific towards the people that are listening. Jesus says later on, you know this scripture, it's so famous, but Jesus says, pray for your enemies. He says, if someone asks you to walk one mile with them, go an extra mile. What does that mean to us now, pray for your enemies? For the people listening then, it was very real and it was very specific because their enemies were Roman soldiers walking around with heavy armor. And any time one of these soldiers got a little bit tired of all their baggage and all their burdens and all their armor, they could just go up to any Hebrew and say, take all of this. And they would put it all on him and the, the Hebrew would have to walk a mile with the Roman soldier. The Roman soldiers could do whatever they wanted. These people were oppressed. They were under Roman rule. So when Jesus says, go the extra mile, what he's actually saying is, there is a way of overthrowing the power balance at work here. And when we hear it, it just sounds like a slightly poetic catchphrase. For them, it was so specific. It was a very real concept. Go the extra mile. Why? Because when you go the extra mile it's no longer oppressor and victim at work. When you go the extra mile you've overturned it and it's now you giving freely. It's actually now you being compassionate. It's actually you now blessing the very person that's got the power to do you wrong. Jesus is saying you're more powerful than you realize. Except you only experience power in the form of brute force and powerful oppression. So you don't realize the power that rests within you internally. And the Sermon on the Mount, what it does to you internally is it starts to make you realize how much you have within you and how the way that you see the world is really informed by what you have going on inside. So when we make the statement, I lack nothing, it is an internal statement that makes true of whatever's outside rather than the other way around. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, really lays out that the way to walk in his kingdom is the path of humility. When you take a Roman soldier's armor another mile, you are stepping into such a posture of humility. So when we say blessed are the meek, some translations say, Blessed are the humble. Some translations say, Blessed are the nonviolent. The closest kind of phrase to, to the original language would be, Blessed are those who restrain their power. That's the true word, meaning of that word meek in the way that Jesus is using it. Blessed are those who are meek. It's actually a military term, and it was used the horses that were trained for war that were so disciplined that were so obedient with one touch from the rider they would change direction they were completely in submission to the rider they'd be trotting along galloping I don't know any other words for horse movements and one little nudge and they would move direction Now these are horses, they're still powerful creatures, they're more powerful than the one riding them, but they are meek, they have restrained their power, they have disciplined themselves to respond to the one that's riding them. Jesus says to the people, the poor, the peasants, the oppressed, blessed are the meek, you guys. Blessed are those who restrain their power, blessed are those who do to others what they would want to have done to themselves. Jesus isn't just doing some nice guruism teaching here. Jesus is speaking to people who are oppressed about how they can actually be free. And it's the same to us today. We might not be under Roman rule, but Jesus made very clear that the empire, like the kingdom, is within. The oppression that we feel more than anywhere else comes from us internally rather than externally. That's why we hear all these incredible testimonies from Auschwitz to the prison cells of modern day of people who speak of being free because internally there was a liberation that informed how they acted externally. Blessed are the meek. And everyone sat around I'm like that's, that's us. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Humility is a pathway to living without lack. It's mad is isn't it? As soon as you take the first step of the extra mile, you're communicating, I'm not the one being oppressed here. I'm the one giving. As soon as you choose to forgive someone, you're communicating, declaring, announcing, I'm not the one being oppressed. I'm the one liberating. I'm the one setting free. There is more power in me, there's more freedom in me than there is oppression externally. Blessed are the meek, those with restrained power, they shall inherit the earth. Once again, Jesus is speaking to people, most of them wouldn't have owned any land. You'll need to read the Old Testament to realize how land was gained in the ancient world. It was through power. It was through war. It was through having more authority, more stature, more influence, more affluence. Often it was done in the most unjust ways. So if you were poor, you didn't have land. If you had land, you were in the upper enchilance of society. You weren't the people that Jesus was speaking to. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's Jesus saying here? Can you imagine the ears of these people just pricking up as he says... Anything that's been taken from you doesn't actually belong to the person who got it out of oppression or injustice. It doesn't belong to them. And if you live your life in such a way of restraining your power, retributive violence, if you live in such a way that is to restore and to forgive, everything will be restored back to you. And everything that you receive in your life, you won't get out of being powerful. And you won't get out of being competitive. You will receive it as a gift, like inheritance. You see, inheritance was such a a common thing to understand in the ancient world. People weren't as individualistic as we are now. They lived in the context of family, forefathers. God is known as the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that which you built and that's what, what you were working on was for your children's children's children. This understanding of family and fellowship, the grandparents in the home, a, co- a common sense of tribe and community. We don't have that in the same way now, especially in our culture. We're much more individualistic. I'm getting what's mine. I'm building my own empire. But for Jesus' audience, they understood, they understood inheritance. Even the very little that they had, they knew that they were building something for their children. And on the flip side, many people listening to Jesus recognized they didn't have inheritance. They weren't going to get something because their fathers and forefathers didn't own anything themselves. So they were probably just in a cycle of debt, repayments, oppression. So when Jesus starts speaking about inheritance, he's actually reordering the entire system. He's reordering their lives, and he's doing the same to us today. There's a psalm, Psalm 24, and again, these are Hebrew people that he's he's speaking in a context where there's a much more integrated understanding of inheritance. And Psalm 24 says, everything, everything in the earth and in the heavens belongs to the Lord. And there was this understanding in a way that we don't have now, that the ownership of the world belongs to God, not us. This is all His. What we've done is we've made it ours, and you got to hold on to what's yours for as long as you can, and you've got to grip it as tightly as you can because someone else could take it. There's only a few spaces at the table. But Jesus was reminding these peasants, these poor people, these tradesmen, Jesus was reminding them, hey, everything is the Lord's. He owns all of it. And if someone has taken from you out of power and dominance and oppression, guess what? It's still not theirs. It's still his. And if you live by these words, if you live with restrained power, If you live with humility, you will receive it through inheritance. It will come back to you. You will be restored. You will be validated. That's the whole message of Jesus. That's Jesus riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus is overthrowing the empires in people's own hearts. He's overthrowing the temples, the systems that put one person over another. And he's doing it again today. Because guess what? We're still caught up in it as well. We still hold on to our things, do we not? We we buy to fulfill. We consume to satisfy. We're still chasing these dreams, these American dreams, even though we're English. We're still chasing this idea that there's something over there that's going to fulfill us in here. We're still caught up in it. And Jesus is still overthrowing it. Jesus is still saying there is nothing that you're going to possess. There's nothing that you're going to grab hold of in your life that isn't God's. And that he can't give you as a gift. John John said this a couple times, but the way you pursue something defines how you possess it. If you get it because you competed for it, you got to compete to keep it. There was, a, there was a really massive UFC fight night last night. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't want to know the results. But there was, there was three title fights. And I was listening to the fighters before the um, before night, and they were all talking about how the, the champions were all talking about how they got this opportunity to defend their belt. They won it, and now they're defending it, right? And so they're living with this sense of being the champion with this gold belt that's theirs because they beat someone for it. But... It's only theirs until someone else beats them, right? It's only theirs until someone else knocks them out. And that's we don't realize it, but that's how often we live. We fight to get what's ours and then we fight to maintain it rather than, rather than having received it as a gift. Jesus talks about inheritance all through the Gospels in teaching and in parables. Probably the most famous one is Luke 15 with the, the story of the prodigal son. And I won't go into all the details because most of you know it, but just as a real quick recap, a man had two sons. And when the younger son came to him and said, Father, I want what you have more than I want you. And the, the audience would have gasped, like, what? The dishonor and the shame of wishing your dad was dead so you could just have what was his. And, It says in verse 12 of Luke 15, the father divided the property between his two sons. He did it. The younger son went away. We know the story. He squandered it. He was in poverty. A famine came. He's eating pig food because that's that's what he sunk down to is looking after pigs. And he thinks to himself, I might as well just go home. But not as a son. I'll go home as a servant. And so he prepares this big speech of God. Sorry, um, Dad, I'm not worthy. And he, he walks home and The story says that whilst he was a long way away, his dad saw him. And his dad started sprinting to meet him. And again, the audience would have been gasping. because For an older man to run, you know, with his legs on show, his robe flapping in the wind, it was shameful. And it was a tradition for rebellious sons that when they came back, the village would come out to meet them with a clay pot and smash it before them as a sign of The shame that they were holding as they re entered the village. And so the dad's running before the words of shame get to him. Jesus is just overthrowing the whole system, the way we understand who God is, the way we understand who we are. And the father meets him, and you know it. And the father just receives him back. He gives him the ring and the robe and the sandals, and he says, Son, you come back fully restored, your inheritance restored. But the story doesn't end there, right? There's the older brother. And whilst the younger son is having his party thrown for him because his dad is so happy he's back, the oldest son is out in the field angry. So when the dad goes out there, the oldest son says, How dare you throw this guy a party? He rebelled against you. He wished you were dead. And I've been out here working for you my whole life. You've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And then the dad turns to him. This is the, the, the beauty of Jesus' storytelling. Jesus just tells the story, pauses, and the dad says to the son, son, everything I have is yours. This has always been yours. I remember reading that years ago, and I wrote in my journal, despite the gold he had been given, right? Verse 12, the father divided it between the two of them. Despite the gold he had been given, all he saw was a goat that he lacked. And that's the posture of the heart that hasn't become meek, that hasn't become humble, that hasn't recognized that everything good in our lives is a gift. It's a gift, it's a gift, it's a gift, it's a gift. I'm rocking these, I've shared this story before, but I'm rocking these Red Wing boots, they're my favorite boots. And I've wanted these boots for years and couldn't afford them. But one day my mother-in-law, Kara's mom, bought me a pair. It's out of nowhere, It wasn't even my birthday. And I lace them up every time I put them on. And I walk out and I look down and I just look at the gift that I'm walking. I can't afford these boots, but I'm walking in a gift. And so are we all every time we step out anywhere. James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there are no shifting shadows. Everything good in your life is a gift. And I shared this before, but that's that's the best way of evangelizing is naming the origin of the goodness in people's lives. It's all a gift. If it's good, it's a gift. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to to earn it in your own strength. Everything even that got you to the point of being able to do it, to being capable of doing it, is a gift. If you stand next to someone who isn't as as able-bodied as you, suddenly you realize just having the use of your limbs is a gift. Everything is a gift. And Jesus is saying to the meek, to the peasants and to the poor, don't worry about it. This way of getting everything in life, the way that they're doing it through oppression and power, they're not going to own it. They won't receive it, but you will. It will all come back. All things will be reconciled and all things will be restored. There's a, there's a very powerful, very challenging point in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Jesus uh, comes to have a conversation with a young man, a wealthy young man. It says this, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. This is a man who's come to Jesus who said, how can I follow you? How can I inherit your teachings? How can I walk in your ways? What, What shall I do? I've obeyed the law. I've done everything. What shall I do? And Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Right, we're on this series, I Lack Nothing. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disenhearted by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Isn't it interesting that everything in his life that communicated that he wasn't in lack in Jesus' kingdom communicated that he was. That everything that he had built from himself had become walls that surrounded him, pushing him further and further away from the simplicity of walking with Jesus. It was about the middle of last year, Kara and I said, all right, let's just, let's just downsize. Let's just give everything away. And we, we started building, we started getting the designs and plans to build this tiny house, this miniature house, where we thought we could just live much more simply and much more sustainable. We realized, actually, if you read the teachings of Jesus, it seems that a pathway to freedom is generosity and that owning little. And so let's just do it. And so we started doing it. We went through all the process of it and we were living in this space where we were looking at the things in our house we were like, that's not ours, that's not ours, that's not ours. And we started feeling really free As we were kind of getting ready for this transition, and then we felt God speak to us. It was then, and he said, go to Canada. And our our posture was, all right, there was no fight in it. We've been here nearly 12 years. We've built an incredible life here. We have friends that I don't want to talk about because I'll start crying. We have community. We have opportunities. We have vocation. We have everything here. And yet, there was something so easy about saying yes to Canada, which is full of uncertainties, because we were so convinced that by giving what we have away is the pathway to true and everlasting freedom. What I'm not saying is you have to go and empty your bank account and give it to the poor. I'm not saying you got to go do that. But I'm saying if you did, it'd be pretty biblical. We're if we really read the Gospels, if we really want to follow Jesus, and if we really want to believe what he says, then we really have to live like, oh, that's not mine. And it's not just what we possess, it's our gifts. It's not just our gifts, it's our bodies. I've like always struggled to have a clear sense of what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Like, what are, what are the principles that will actually help me live healthily? Diet fads, workout regimes, all that kind of stuff. It was the Beatitudes that made it all click for me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't own this. I'm a trustee, right? I'm taking care of something from my possessions to the earth, to my body. I'm a trustee. I'm going to give it back one day. And I'm taking care of it in a way that honors the source of where it was given. So when Paul says, don't you know, your body actually isn't your own. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's saying you can treat your bodies like craftsmen of a temple. These aren't just, you know, get fit quick ideas. These aren't just follow a diet plan. These are actually, if we take the teachings of the New Testament serious, everything that we have from our physical bodies to the money in our bank accounts is a gift from God that we have the opportunity to take care of and to steward well. That's fascinating to me. The gospel isn't about when you die, where do you go? The gospel is about how do you live right now? How does the kingdom come into your life integrated right now? It affects everything. And... uh. I'm enamored by it. I don't know how I went so long without reading the Beatitudes and realizing that I'm in a lot less control of my life than I thought I was. Does that make sense? We don't have the control that we think we have. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament theologian, said this. He goes, look, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat, (laughs) Even if you get it all by the means of your own, like, achievements and success, da-da-da-da. Who are you at the end? What do you take with you afterwards? What is actually truly yours? What do you actually own? And what actually owns you? St. Francis, I've got tattooed on my arm just to keep keep me in check, says, give it all away so you can be open to everything. St. Francis came from a very wealthy lineage, and he famously stood in front of a judge and his father and stripped completely naked and said, I own none of this, and I don't want any of it. And he went into the wilderness, and he preached to anyone that would listen, including the moon and the trees, and he brought good news to the poor. And many call him the last Christian, (laughs) the last person in history that really took this stuff seriously. My challenge this morning for myself and for all of us is to say we lack nothing means to say Christ has given me everything. No one owes me anything. It isn't comfort on our own terms. It's an expression of the kingdom that is truly, truly opposite to the comfort and the way of the world. And in closing, I just got a couple very small uh, challenges. I don't know ways of going about this week, things that I started putting into practice last year when I read this verse. Uh, this, is, this is so, sim- so simple. It's, it's, I don't want it to sound insulting. Um, put someone else first this week. You know, put someone else first. Go the extra mile. I was driving this morning, and every time you drive, there's an opportunity for someone to give way to someone because they're going somewhere as well, right? Let them go. Just do something that puts someone else before you. It will reposition you as meek. Yeah, you've got the power to put yourself first, but what if you don't? <laughs> I've got written down, no second helpings. <laughs> that was something that was very real for me. I love seconds and thirds. No second helping says this. There is enough in this world for everyone, (laughs) but sometimes I treat it like there's only enough for me and i got to consume it as quick as I can. So even though my second helping that I don't have isn't going directly to someone who is in need, it actually teaches me that most of the world don't have the opportunity to have a second helping. It brings a restrained power. It's very simple. Honor the earth. Honor the physical earth. We've got an amazing uh, lady, I don't know if she's here, but Izzy is a a campaigner for how do we take care of the earth, and she's got an Instagram account. Could someone put it on the thread right now, in the chat, where she's given some really helpful, simple, sustainable ideas for caring for our earth, because guess what? In Genesis 1, it says it's good, and it's still good, and God's still taking care of it, and we're still trustees of it. It's so simple. So that's all I have to say on the Beatitudes next week. But in, 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 one, in one sentence, I lack nothing for Christ in me is sufficient. And now let's try to live that out. Amen? Let's try actually live that out. Christ is in me, and that is sufficient. All right, I'm going to pray real quick. God, I thank you that you invite us into abundant life. And I thank you that abundant life means a life that exceeds our expectations, goes beyond what we even anticipate. But that abundant life doesn't necessarily mean an abundance of things, but an abundance of an inner joy and an inner satisfaction that only you can offer. And this morning as a church and as a community, we say that we receive it. Would you teach us? Would you lead us? We want to grow in your ways. We want to say boldly and with conviction in our lives that we lack nothing and truly mean it and truly live it out as a witness and as a light to those who feel so deeply in lack. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.